Hey everyone, this is Arnold with Warm Welcome. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to another episode. And today we're sitting down with Johnny Lee. Johnny Lee is the chef owner of Pearl River Deli in Chinatown, Los Angeles. And in Chinatown, there's a little plaza in this plaza that he's in. It's called Far East Plaza. Next to it is the infamous Howlin' Ray's fried chicken. If you haven't heard of it or tried it yet, it is all the rage. In the same kind of mall, you also have Lhasa, which is a Filipino restaurant. And you have Alvin Kalin's Amboy, along with obviously a few other terrific restaurants. And uh, there's also a cookbook store called Now Serving LA. And uh, it's a cool situation over there. In any case, um, Far East Plaza, that mall, was recommended to, you, to me quite a bit, multiple times actually, when I first moved out here as a place to check out. And so I did. And uh, Pearl River Deli really kind of stood out to me in terms of their offering. It was a very short menu that they had, maybe just a few items. And uh, obviously, you know, the the offerings lean um, very Cantonese. So they have a great chashu. And then right now they have a Hainan, Hainan chicken that they sell just on the weekends on talk. Uh, it's very limited and sells out almost every week. So really excited to kind of feature my conversation with Johnny. Um, as always, I was just really curious about how this came to be, how this project came to be, how he found himself in that location, what the origin story was there with the name and the concept. And obviously we had another chef a few episodes back, Ryan Wong from Needle in Silver Lake. And these two guys, so Ryan from Needle and Johnny from Perverdelli or PRD, they get kind of thrown in together quite a bit in articles and press um, as people who are trying to preserve and push forward Cantonese cuisine. So again, really happy to be talking with Johnny. And uh, without further ado, this is my conversation with Johnny Lee from Pearl River Deli. I'm, uh, I am, I actually wasn't born in this country, but I was brought over when I was like barely one years old. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I kind of have an interest. In, I guess I have. I guess I'm part of a generation that like had to be naturalized, but I'm still pretty fully Americanized as well. But you know, I grew up speaking pretty much perfect English, but I still had to be naturalized um, when I was in, I think, the first or second grade. My family has stayed in the Los Angeles greater area for pretty much our entire lives. And for yourself included, like, what has that been the case for you? Just growing up, you go, I think you went to UC Riverside when I when I looked you up as well. So it seems like it seems like you were kind of born and bred, and and you were very locally based as well. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I didn't go to any school closer was because I couldn't get into it. You know. Um, UC Riverside has a among the Asian American community, like UC Riverside has a has a has a a funny name as a UC Rejects. It's considered the lowest tier of all the UC schools. I mean, maybe now I think I hear now the reputation is a lot better, and because it's so expensive, all the UCs are so expensive now. Yeah, um, I think any UC is good, but uh, at the time it was like it was like every Asian's default fallback UC. Like if you. You know, if you're like a 3.5 GPA, like you're not quite there, you know, like, you know, you can get in to UC Riverside at that time. I don't know how it is now. I think, I think it's probably a little bit tougher these days. Did you, what did you study in school? Cause I, I don't think you, you did anything culinary wise until, until later on. Right. I tried to be a good Asian and uh, major in something uh, stereotypical. So business administration, whatever that is, whatever that is. 
to be honest, I was actually growing up, I was actually very, always very kind of like interested in economics and, and things. I think I probably should have been an economics major in retrospect because I'm more interested in like, you know, my, my, micro and macroeconomics theory and shit. Itself, it's just whatever. I wasn't built for the office. So this is interesting because here you are, you're born and raised in, in, in LA, go to you know school here in California. But then I found something interesting about you, which is you ended up in Colorado somehow. Um, so I kind of want to talk about that and how you, how you ended up there for a little bit. Yeah, so um, I had the uh, unfortunate time of graduating in uh, in the class of two thousand nine. So right after the financial crash, and you you went straight to Colorado after you graduated from uh, from school. No, I kind of just bummed around at home for a few months trying to find a job, but that was quite hopeless at that time. Especially for like someone like me that didn't wasn't really that much. There wasn't really an overachiever. I was like you know like like a B plus student, you know. So I never, so I, I wasn't like out there getting like internships and all this stuff. And I tried my hand at some unpaid internships and I just found the whole office life very dreadful. So, you know, after a few months sitting around at home, I, my, my mother's friend was opening a restaurant in Colorado. Um, and this is pretty common for like Chinese people to like go to other states to open restaurants. So they needed someone there, especially someone that spoke English. So I, I figured, like, why not? It's better to sit at home. And this was your first time working in a restaurant, then, right? Yes, kind of. I mean, I, I did work at McDonald's one summer. I don't know if, you, if that even counts. Yeah. So this was like the first, I guess, first like professional kitchen, so to speak. Yeah. 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 Totally. And you know, I, I was brought on just to be a waiter. Mm. Oh, so you didn't, oh, you were actually front of house. I thought, I thought it was maybe kind of like a prep cook situation and then more and more kitchen. Yeah, no, no, no. They, they had, they had the kitchen people. They just needed people out front who could speak English, you know, take, um, because it's, it was like primarily like 90% Caucasian. So they needed someone who could speak English. <laughs> so, I mean, how was that? Did you, did you enjoy it or what was your, your takeaway from that? This is, is this when you thought that this is what you wanted to do or? Honestly, I really loved it. I mean, I, um, you know, like taking care of customers, uh, you know, being able to, um, you know, like just take care of people and show them a good time and, um, you know, just make them, you know, like it felt rewarding, you know, serving people food and making them happy and getting to know them. It was a small town. I think the population was uh, like 20 or 30,000 people. I can't quite remember, but yeah, like, you know, and then there'll be regulars that will come like once or twice a week and you start to get to know them and, you know, it's kind of uh, building relationships like that was pretty cool, you know, for me. Did you end up doing any other, like, did you take on any other roles in this restaurant too, or? Yeah, so actually about maybe like two or three months in, the the acting manager uh, who was like the head waiter uh, had a had a falling out with one of the partners. Um, so she ends up leaving. And next thing you know, it's like, they're like, hey, can you uh, help us kind of manage all these other little things? Like, you know, uh, making sure that the bills are paid, you know, um, you know, handling all basically all the English level stuff that they didn't know how to do or couldn't do. 
Wow. So like three months in, you came, you, I mean, essentially you became a manager in three months. <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting. You know, because I had never closed the cash register at all in my life. You see, no, I, I'm responsible for like, yeah, we count out cash again at night, which there tend to be a lot of sometimes. Um, yeah, just t- talking with the accountant to make sure things are cool and just keeping the place open uh, on paper. Wow. So without you even knowing it, and almost maybe unintentionally, you got fast-tracked into restaurant management. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't really that. I would I will hardly consider it managing, but I mean, just like little menial office duties that are thrown on me while still having to be like, you know, waiting tables and serving customers. So after that, you came back to LA or California in 2010, I want to say. Um, I think you mentioned in another interview how at that time in 2010, it was kind of the boom of the food trucks. But uh, I want to hear a little bit more from your, your, you know, you exactly what it was like in 2010 when you came back. I was kind of forced to come back because the restaurant ended up going out of business actually. And so, and, but I was happy to return home because, you know, I was really missing California. Uh, there's really nothing to do out there in that small town except work. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, the timing was just perfect because Kogi was just really taking off at that time. Yeah. This was when, he might have only had like maybe two or three trucks at the time. He was, he was, you know, like he was kind of like somewhat known, but at the same time, he was still like a whisper on the internet on this thing called Twitter that people were just starting to talk about, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. People were like, man, you gotta, you, you gotta look up this spot. Um, yeah. Look up on Twitter and then chase down this truck or something. That's what people were saying back then, you know, and I actually went out to one of their, Went out to go check it out with some friends because I was curious, and we waited like an hour and a half to get like uh, the food. It was it was just a perfect storm, wasn't it? The 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 rise of social media and then the food truck craze. I feel like that is just like the perfect marriage if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, his story has to has a lot to do with the financial crash as well. You know, he was laid off because of it. I, and you're and yourself included, you know, in some sense, right? Like you wouldn't have ended up in Colorado working in a restaurant if it if it weren't for the time yeah, of your graduation. Exactly. So it's all connected, I guess. Okay, so you're in a, you're here in LA. You you line up for the Kogi truck for an hour plus, and you see this you see this craze. What 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 goes on in your mind? Like what's next for you at this point? Um, I was just thinking about getting a job. So at that point, I knew I already had I already knew that you know I like restaurants, I like food. I kind of want to get into cooking, you know, at that point. Um, so I, you know, and then I started seeing these food trucks around, like, uh, like I, re- I remember I saw the one food truck, like grill a mall or something like before it became like famous and well-known. And I thought that's pretty cool, you know? Um, so I just started applying to a bunch of different food trucks and seeing if they would take me on. And, um, I ended up working for one called the Flying Pig Truck. What were the biggest challenges with that? I'm so, I'm so curious with the food truck, operating a food truck. We had to be ready for it. Like something always went wrong, you know, because a lot of times these food trucks, like at least the owner, the owner of this one, he tended to, he was renting a really old food truck. So something would always go wrong or there's something could go wrong. You know, like we're talking about like accidents, like the truck hits something, something hits the truck you know, a tire gets blown out and it's not as easy as just calling AAA because 
this is a special big wheel and tire. Um, you know, like sometimes yeah, we, some f- we forget to fill up propane. There'd be no gas. It just seems like so many things could go wrong, you know, in, in a mobile operation like that. Yeah, yeah. It was it was quite stressful at times. I think it definitely taught me to think quick on my feet. I know you have a lot of experience doing other things, so we don't have to touch on every single one, but there is one person that you've mentioned before, um, Alvin, Alvin Kalen, uh, as as kind of like a key transformative um, a turning point for you, really. So if we could touch on that, that'd be I think that'd be great. While I, was, while I was working for the food truck, I had intended to um, go to culinary school. So I was trying to save my money for that. And then, but then for me, uh, after a few months of working, I realized it's not really worth it. Yeah. I, Because I, I had no, I was able to graduate without any debt, luckily, uh, college. And the last thing I wanted to do was get into new debt. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I kind of shoved that plan. And also, a lot of my coworkers were like, look, what blue graduates. And not trying to talk smack, but they were kind of like low quality employees. And seeing the people that came out of that school, I was like, nah, I don't think I really need to go. Yeah. So, I mean, I just kept working. You know, I, after the food truck, I ended up going to a fine, a fine dining restaurant, um, worked there for a bit. And then one thing led to another. I, I ended up helping someone start a farmer's market stall for, at the Altadena Farmer's Market that would eventually become uh, sticky rice at the Grand Central Market. And, you know, I just happened to have the good timing of, they were desperate for vendors and uh, the owner of sticky rice and I, um, we had nothing better to do. We're like, well, why don't, why don't we just try to go into this market? Like, see what happens. And uh, yeah, and then Grand Central Market became a thing. Um, yeah, and that's where I met Alvin because he would come eat at the counter at Sticky Rice while I was working there. Uh, and he would, you know, just like talk shop with me. And, you know, we got to know each other uh, because he was waiting for his restaurant to be built, built out, which was the first ex, uh, brick and mortar of Ixlet. Yeah, which is so crazy now. It's it's grown so much. I think I was in Korea actually this past summer and I think they opened, they opened in uh, Korea too. Yeah, yeah. They've had licensing deals all over the world now. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. I believe like London and definitely one in London and one in, uh, I can't remember where else, Lebanon or something like that. I don't know. Uh, yeah. You ended up, did you end up working for Alvin too at, at that first Excel location? Yeah, yeah. So I got at the, so I was actually like planning to leave Sticky Rice because I was getting really burnt out working there because I, I wasn't getting like the kind of support you know, like I, uh, I needed, and you know, also this, despite me being an issue for a few years at that point, I still felt fairly like inexperienced in, in some, in some ways. Um, and looking back, I realized like, I really didn't know anything. So, you know, Alvin kind of like, you know, because Alvin was also, he was growing fast. So he needed someone to help him run Excel so that he could expand the biz- business outside of the, you know, of the first restaurant. But yeah, he brought me on to run the, the kitchen at Excel <laughs> at the time. How many, dude, you gotta, you gotta tell me about that. Cause I'm sure that was an insane operation, right? Like how many, how many, Saturdays, how many? I used to tell people like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like every day, like on a slow day, we probably go for sixty pounds of bacon. 
Oh my God. On a busy day, 100 to 120, you know, like, you know, we, we would have these griddles just for, just for cooking bacon. And, you know, like, I don't know if you know, familiar with the, the, the flat top griddles, but they have like this oil catch tray where all the grease goes. So usually in most kitchens, like it, it, it tends to like you, it tends to not fill up. Some people don't even empty out and they empty out like a week. We had to empty out like sometimes two, one to two times in the middle of service. Because it, otherwise, if we don't pay attention, it will start overflowing bacon grease. Oh my gosh. Because you're just moving through so much bacon. Yeah. And, and like, honestly, like, you know, those orange uh, Home Depot buckets, you could use that to, to, pour, to, to store the, the hot bacon grease until we had time to take it down to the grease trap. We would almost fill it up sometimes. Oh my gosh, dude. This is really insane. Yeah. Just like a numbers. It was an insane operation. I was, you know, he, and he kind of just threw me in. And it was really the first week, the first two weeks was really tough. Um, just like I had never, I mean, I don't think most people ever experienced those kind of numbers that they were doing, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. And what was from this experience, it seems like it, it, it was a really crazy experience for you. Um, what was like your biggest takeaway here? Was there anything like systematic that you learned from this operation that you carried over or? Yeah, I learned that like, you know, like what it really means is to like scale something, you know, to, so that like you can have, you know, to be busy enough where like, okay, I need, I need to hire one person just to do one thing. And that's, that's like peak efficiency, you know? Uh, so it was very eye-opening. I had, I had never even seen an operation like that before. So having help run it, I was like, well, it gave me the confidence to be like, well, if I can if I can run this place, I can run anything, you know. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a that's I think that's a great segue into just talking about what you're doing your project, right? So right now, you have uh, Pearl River Deli in the Far East Plaza in Chinatown in LA. But uh, if I if I read correctly, you actually it was a pop up before it became a permanent space, and it wasn't even supposed to be a permanent space, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it was, it, the whole, you know, like. It's kind of like there was, there were like multiple things going on throughout the whole existence of this Prover Delta brand I came up with. Um, I think it was around the time I, I, was, uh, I was running Sidechick in uh, Arcadia, which was the Hainan chicken concept. Um, and, you know, we were doing pretty well, uh, but I was, you know, there, was, there were a bunch of issues with like, like partners in. And whatnot, and things just weren't, you know, like on the surface, things look good, you know, like we're getting good media press. And, you know, we, at the time, we had like a glowing Jonathan Gold review and, you know, like a best new restaurant from like GQ and all that stuff. But, you know, thing, behind the scenes, like I wasn't quite happy and there was a lot of issues with management. So, like, eventually I parted ways, but I needed something to do in the meantime. So I, was, I started working on, um, like a like a pop up, you know. I, you know, funny, funnily, funnily enough, Alvin was running the uh, where Lassa is right now in Far East Plaza. It used to be Unit 120, which was Alvin's incubator project. So he started doing, uh, you know, a lot of guests in to do some cooking, and you know, I started getting uh, integrated with the whole Chinatown crowd, uh, which I had not been part of for like years. You know, I, I had no idea what was going to Chinatown, but you know, like there was people doing some interesting things and 
you know, Alvin was there. So like, okay, let's, uh, you know, let's uh, do some stuff. And one thing led to another and, uh, you know, I, I did this kind of chicken pop up there and it kind of like blew up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's when I started doing my own thing because I wanted to do more Cantonese food. I was feeling like I started like studying more Cantonese food and seeing like what, you know, my food, what my the food, my heritage, what really was, and I started having like a greater interest and appreciation for it. So I decided to like just test out some stuff. There was an event in Chinatown called Chinatown After Dark at the time. That was like a once a month thing. It's kind of like an open mic night for chefs. Um, we would set up on the second floor of Fox Plaza. Everybody would, you know, just cook something and interesting. And you know, we all try to keep it like affordable and. You know, it was a very like chill atmosphere, and I was able to just kind of experiment, you know, and do random things. You know, like when I think back, it's like not everyone get. You know, like it's all thanks because the landlord, um, you know, who is my current landlord now at the time, he was, you know, he's like very cool, and he wanted to support, you know, young young people doing stuff, you know, because you know, I think he knows how hard it is to like get started without, well, like investors or money, you know. You just, uh, I'm going to bounce around a little bit, but just because you just mentioned Cantonese cuisine and preserving it and appreciating it, I've been seeing that a lot that you want to, with your project, you want to preserve, appreciate and evolve Cantonese cuisine. But could we, could we go into that a little bit more in terms of what you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, something I, I, it's just like a motto I came up with originally. And I think over time it's kind of, kind of evolved a bit itself. Um, for me, pres- the preservation aspect came about because I started seeing a change in San Gabriel Valley in that like a lot of Cantonese restaurants were starting to close, like the chefs retire, owners retire, and then to replace it would be uh, like either like a Northern Chinese restaurant or a Sichuan restaurant. This was a period of time when the money coming out of China was like really flowing out of China and into the San Gabriel Valley. You know, you would have before it was unheard of of a Chinese restaurant to spend a million dollars on a build out. And next thing, and all of a sudden, like you were seeing some pretty crazy build outs, you know, like because of the EB5 visa program, all this money started flowing in because all these uh, rich Chinese people wanted to get visas to come to America. Oh, I see. So that, that pattern of immigration ultimately changed also obviously affected the food landscape of San Gabriel Valley and it leaned away from Cantonese cuisine and more so into the other, the regional cuisines. Yeah, and because the wave of immigration was, it trended, he- skewed heavily toward Cantonese people up until that point in time. Um, you know, specifically, my immigration group is, uh, we're from, we're, uh, we're what we call ourselves a Toysan uh, Chinese. So, you know, we so the Toysan Chinese are actually, we've been here since, I don't know, like, as long as Chinese people have been coming to America. So, in fact, like, for example, my great-grandfather on my mother's side was a, was a coolie, one of those railroad workers. And, you know, so, you know, we are, Toys Out people have a long history in America. And because of that, you know, for like over 100 years, the food was, um, whatever food or like cooking styles that, Chinese food brought over, it was heavily Cantonese influenced because that was what most of the immigrants were at the time. 
So then, you know, like Q, like 2010, it's like all this money, China's like economically doing very great. All these people want to come to America and also like, the landscape's changing. And, you know, like I grew up, when I grew up, you could easily go around China, I mean, uh, Stagger Valley speaking Cantonese without any issue. And I don't speak Mandarin very well, you know. So next thing you know, um, nobody really speaks my language. You know, uh, most of the restaurants aren't familiar to me now. And it starts to feel like I'm being, like, not pushed out or being marginalized in my own community. You know, because I think I mean, Asian Americans, we, a lot of Chinese Americans are occupied in this interesting space where, you know, their parents might not be that Americanized, you know? And then we had to, you know, we were encouraged to like learn English, do well in school and, you know, like assimilate, right? But now with this new wave of Chinese, like uh, immigrants who tend to already have money, they don't, a lot of them don't, and they, they don't tend to assimilate, assimilate as much because they don't need to for survival because uh, they already have funds and to live comfortably. So now we're like caught between two generations, like Chinese, like both are not very Americanized. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a very unique situation, I think, in the, the existing San Diego Valley because, you know, for a long time, you, I mean, for for a long, yeah, for a long, for all recent history, uh, um, you can live in the San Diego Valley while knowing English. So I guess in lieu of what was happening, especially in that area, you felt it important to obviously maintain and and keep like this cuisine alive, right? Is what you kind of came to the conclusion with? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like you start see, I started seeing what was happening in Hong Kong and like the kind of you know increased um, interference of Hong Kong's independence with China, right? Uh, you start, you know, and then. You know, it starts to feel like suddenly, and then, and also in like other Cantonese parts of China, like the government doesn't encourage people to speak Cantonese because they want everyone just to speak the same dialect. It's just it's easier that way for efficiency's sake. So you know, all the all the kids who go to school in China, like they don't speak their native dialect and they have to speak at home. And a lot of times they don't want to; they just want to speak one language. So the parents are forced to speak Mandarin with their kids now. And so, you know, so it feels like there's like an assault on our, you know, even though we're Chinese, like it feels like an assault on our, you know, heritage. Moving away a little bit from this conversation, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is you opened, this is crazy to me still, to be honest with you, you opened in February of 2020. We are coming up on your one year anniversary when it's February of this year, obviously. The entire time you have basically been open and operating during COVID nineteen. Yeah, I mean, we basically had a normal operation for maybe two, three weeks, maybe maybe like before indoor dining got shut down. I think we had it like maybe we barely even had a month, not even you know. Um, yeah, the timing, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. The first day of our pop up, which it was a pop up at the time. The first day was the day Kobe died, you know. So, yeah, you know, it was, it was a tough. Yeah, it was. It was like a tough. I, I don't know. It was like, probably it was a tough week. It was a tough time for LA, you know. Yeah, the timing of everything because Kobe was January. I don't know why I know this, but it's January twenty sixth, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so that was the day we. Or was it? I don't know. All I know is it was our first actual day of the pop up. We're like we we're kind of like testing it, like friends and family. Well, technically open to the public. 
So, I mean, it was like, you know, I feel like my, my whole life's like, you know, the timing is just like, I don't know, interesting. I'm just curious, what what kept you going? Because like you said, this was, this was a pop-up. It was a limited engagement. You could have, uh, you know, in March, be like, you know what? It's probably not a good idea to keep this going or something up to that degree. So what what made you make the decision to just kind of push on? And, and, and just tell me how it's been too. I'm so curious. At the time when we were starting, I thought it was you know it's interesting because I never in the be, in the beginning I never actually thought about like oh we should maybe we should like stop this uh, because I can I can yeah I was thinking well we'll just see how this goes week by week you know you know it's looking back it's kind of crazy but at the time I was just thinking well th- so this is what happened this week oh well indoor dining goes okay. Uh, it's like, oh, I should probably get a quick screen. So I just, every time there was some kind of like challenge because of COVID, we, um, I just approached it very logically. Uh, I think I attribute to it, like after having like all my experiences of being in restaurants where there was like blush that went wrong. I think I, at this point, like not, not much phases me now. So I just, I think like every, you know, like, Every 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 situation, like eh, we can figure it out, and, and I don't know, maybe like I'm very like Buddhist about things, but it's like well, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, whatever. I see. That's like your philosophy. Yeah, you know, I, I was already kind of like I tend to think very long term anyway, so I'm like, okay, I just let's just see. Maybe if we can just get to gut aside this, we'll be fine. You know, um, <laughs> that timeline keeps getting extended, though. So. But I think that's a, that's a great mindset to have, especially in this business, you know, to see the, the, the long, the long game and the big picture. Cause it's, it's easy to not be able to see that and only see what's in front of you. So. I've always been very long-term minded. Like I always like to think like, well, you know, how's this gonna, you know, how's this going to look like five years from now? You know, like, do I, do I still want to be doing this? You know? Um, and if I do, let's, you know, work toward making it so that like when I get there, it's not, I'm not still like, working so hard, I start stressed. Uh, as we're talking about the long-term and, and kind of goals and things of that nature, um, as you're operating Pearl River Deli, right, and kind of going back to your mission statement about um, preserving, appreciating, and evolving, in terms of the evolving part, how difficult or a challenge has it been in terms of wanting, I'm sure personally you want to evolve it to a certain degree, but it's like you talk about this too, uh, about pushing boundaries versus giving people what they want. How do you determine this and how do you go about this kind of ideology? Yeah, so I think the advantage of running a small place is that I can have total control of almost every aspect of it. Um, you know, because like once, okay, one, one thing about things places like Excellent, right? Uh, you, you know, you, you run for like, you know, three to 500 customers in a day, not more. You know, you're, you're not going to get to know most of their faces. They're just a number in line, right? Whereas a smaller shop like this, I can focus on each individual customer and get to know like what their comfort levels are and, you know, build trust with them. And, you know, like having a good report, you know, like having, I mean, I also am blessed to have like a great team. Uh, my front of house people are like, they, they know the customers ready to be actually because they're always out there. So they tend to know how to, you know, like see what they might like and, see what they want to try. And a lot of them, a lot of times, you know, they want to try anything, you know, at this point, because we've been able to have a fairly good, like successful run of like, of like specials. 
And I think I think it's just a lot of it's having 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 like a familiarity with your customers, right? You can't do that if you don't know who your customers are. Let me ask you this, because you're you're like where you are is so interesting to me geographically speaking, because it's equidistant to K Town, equidistant to like Highland Park, Echo Park slash Eagle Rock, um, which I've learned to learn, which I've learned recently that a lot of people live out there. So who is your who who is your customer? Like who's your, who's your audience? We have a very diverse range of customers. Um, they do tend to have heavily skewed toward being uh, Asian American, uh, but even within that range, it's fairly diverse. You know, it's not just Chinese people. There's, it's, we get plenty of like, uh, you know, like uh, new newer mainland immigrant Chinese, uh, more well-established Asian Americans, you know, and non-Chinese Asian Americans. You know, and generally, a fair amount of like non-Asian customers too. You know. Uh, I think like forty percent are non Asian. Um, I think a lot of them are people who have always been interested in Chinese food if they were already. And then I think it's just that all I'm doing is presenting it in a more digestible like form. Like for example, like well, if you're if you're um, if you're vegan, you can eat this. If you're uh, you know if if you're trying to be gluten free, maybe we can do this for you. You know, like. Having that like a transparency, you know, like you go to Chinese restaurants sometimes it's like, you know, like a lot of these customers, I think they feel like Chinese restaurants might not take their needs seriously or be able to accommodate their needs. I think being willing to be flexible and also be transparent with what the food is. Because a lot of times people don't know what, you know, like if there is that picture menu, people might be a little intimidated to order off like a menu to like, you know, for example, like what what is like toothpick lamb, right? You know, and I think having, you know, like I I, I definitely try, you know, like there's no like in Chinese restaurants traditionally there's no FOH training, right? Like the waiters might not know all the dishes, you know, and if you put a new dish on, they might not, you know, there's not like a tasting where they, you know, where we all like come together and discuss, you know, talk about how to sell it to the customer, how to describe it to the customer. You know, I think that's what I'm doing. That tends to not be as common in Chinese restaurants traditionally. You know, I see. So that's that 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 you think is one of the biggest differences, huh? It's is more of a a dialogue and a two way street in terms of how you approach uh, your your customers. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we're we're trying to create value for them, not just in like the quality of the food, but also in the education of what the food is. You know. I think people people want to try new things, but the thing is, at the same time, they do need someone to hold their hand a little bit, you know. Like uh, they want to try new things, but they want to try to, if, if if it's good, and they need to you need to give them the confidence that what they're trying will be good. I'm just curious as you as you're coming around on the one year mark here too. Like, are you thinking about scaling this to a certain degree, or what's your vision for? I know I know it's too early to tell even right now, but what is your vision for it? Honestly, you know, like I've worked enough in this industry to I've worked with a bunch of different people who who have like all wanted to like create a concept that they could scale. And like for me, I want the complete opposite of that. If this is the only one I'm happy, you know, I just want to make enough money where like I could pay all the employees like a good living wage, you know, have enough, keep enough for myself and, and then be able to travel like once or twice a year. You know, just have a nice quality of life. I'm not interested in scaling things because I've seen what it takes to get to that point. 
And it's, you know, it's not easy. Like, not every, a lot of people, a lot of people want to be the next Shake Shack or Chipotle, but I think a lot of them don't realize what it takes to get there. And I'm not interested in, like, pursuing that. You know, I just want to, I feel like to cook the food I want, I want to cook or cook the food I'm cooking now, it can't be scaled up without losing something, you know? And I'm not interested in compromising my vision to do that. I, you know, I just want to do my thing and, you know, just run, let it run its course and, you know, see what happens. I'm not, you know, I'm kind of like, I think this whole having, you know, having graduated from like during the financial crash time and having experienced this and the whole economic situation we're in now, like, you know, like the whole, this whole like capital, you know, capitalistic society where it kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth, you know, I feel like we've kind of like, like run this course where like everyone's trying to make as much money as they can, but like, it's not sustainable. And, you know, like all the restaurant groups that had like tons of locations that are really big, you know, that have big teams, you know, they've had to lay off a ton of people, right? And like, I just don't, I feel like the bigger you grow, the more responsibility you have. And, you know, like, I feel pretty happy with the team I have now. I don't want to grow unless they really, unless they really need to, because, you know, like, I just don't want to think about like, well, if this is work out, how many people am I going to have to lay off? You know, you know, like everyone on my team now, I'm, you know, I'm sure, you know, I think, I think I'm, I think they're in a good place. Like, you know, like if we were to close, like it's not easy to find our job right now. You know, especially, with, especially because they're not like, well, they're not like, how should I say, like, you know, tech workers or like some, or like those like high school, like, you know, they wouldn't be able to transition to some like high level, like work from home office job, right? At least not that easily. No, definitely not. I think that's, that's what was so exposed this, this, this time around too, was, you know, especially in restaurant, if you're in the restaurant industry and doing restaurant work, it doesn't, some of the skills that you thought would translate, they, they don't necessarily, we don't have the luxury of, maybe they do, but not into another job that could be remote, right? Like we, we don't have that luxury. No, totally. I, I mean, it's just kind of, you know, like see the lack of support from the government and everything. I'm just like, well, you know, I just, Try to keep it sustainable for now. See what happens in the long term. You know, if there's opportunities to grow, we're like, okay, well, team members want to want to step up and do more, and maybe we can do like another project that makes sense. You know, I will, I would definitely love to do that if if they're ready. But you know, this is the one and only thing I'm okay with that too, because I think I still have a lot of room to to grow to grow the brand and just to grow like the concept into places that you know I think. You know, it'd be nice to have a little bit more space. If, if it comes down the line where we can get a bigger space, that'd be great too. But for now, like I think we're making do. <laughs> One last question before I send you off. We we didn't touch on it, but as uh, to wrap up, why did you name your project or, or restaurant as Pearl River Deli? Uh, so this was uh, derived from the concept, the pop-up concept I had called Pearl River Delta, which refers to the re- geographic region of uh, China where I'm from and where my family is traditionally from. Uh, I, I chose that name because it kind of encompasses. Because I, I, need, I needed a name that would like allow me to be flexible with the concept, and that I wanted to do Cantonese food, but I also wanted to cook the food of the diaspora because 
Cantonese people are everywhere else in the world. You know, they're all over Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, they're here in America. And I think, and then there's the fact that like Cantonese food in, in mainland China and Cantonese food in Hong Kong, you know, those can be, there's, there's, new, there's uh, nuances and differences between both of them. So I'm saying that just kind of like, it's like a blanket geographic term for all the food in that area allowed, would allow me flexibility to cook like what outside of what people don't normally consider Cantonese food, but it's still within the geographic area of Cantonese food. Thanks, Johnny, for being on the show and just giving really great insight into the current landscape here in LA and how the cuisine has changed from what it used to be a couple generations ago to maybe even losing a part of it as well. And I think like people like yourself, and again, like I mentioned earlier in the episode with Ryan from Needle, um, it's really inspiring to see that there's a younger generation that's really trying to make sure that Cantonese cuisine is alive and well and maybe even thriving. So um, if you haven't checked out Po River Deli, we definitely recommend it. And if you haven't had their Hainan chicken, it's available on talk only. Uh, I believe most of the menus on talk too, but uh, the best way to do this, as I've learned, is to call them. Um, and their menu changes quite frequently and they have you know, daily specials, weekly specials, and they're really good at updating that on Instagram. So I would definitely check them out on Instagram. It is at PRD underscore LA. I'll make sure to have that in the show notes as well. And appreciate you tuning in. I'll see you next week on With Warm Welcome.